You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 217 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Are you excited? It's like summer, it's the end of the year, it's the start of a new year, it's all happening. <laughs> You're not very excited. Trying to summons up the excitement here, Val, and uh, yeah, falling very short. I'm, I'm just, I'm hot. I'm really oh, hot. I and, know, and not in a good way. Like you know, I would like to be hot in a good way, but I am just hot in a <laughs> lather of sweat kind of way. Like it's just, I'm at a house full of boys who are all hot. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's – and I've currently got them corralled in the living room so they can't play the PS4 or anything. So they're all sitting in there watching a Christmas movie waiting for me to finish podcasting. Mm-hmm. God love them. Wow. It is hot, but that's – yeah, summer in Australia can get that way for all of our overseas listeners. But uh, the antidote, of course, is my favourite thing, and whoever invented this should win the Nobel Prize, uh, air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but you, it's, you know, I have to tell you, it's very, very hard to air condition a house that was built in 1870. Yes. I'm just saying. True. It's really difficult. And I have to say that our cross ventilation is generally pretty good. So we just open all of the things. Mm. But we also, at this point, are living in a time when there doesn't seem to be a breeze at all. No. So, gosh. you know. We're just waiting yes. for the southerly. Don't you love that? Though I do love, I have to let's say I love the Australian tradition yes. of waiting for the southerly. I know. So we're all just lying around <laughs> in a sauna waiting for the southerly. And it's really funny because you can see it, um, you know, in the evenings on Twitter and stuff like that. Because we're south, we do get it before you, so we're a yes. little bit excited and smug about that. Yeah. Um, but you can watch it coming up the coast. Just on Twitter because you can oh, – well, see. in the sense that people will be like, bang, southerly hit, I'm in Marimbula, bang, southerly hit, I'm in Yeah, And it's all yes. like we're all just waiting. Yeah. But, the, um, it is a good Australian tradition though. I feel we should all just embrace it. It is, sitting, mm. waiting for the southerly with a beer on the front deck. I think that's, yeah. yeah, pretty cool. And then when it comes and you've got that beer. Now, actually, speaking of your 1870 house, something that just occurred to me, if mm. you sit on your the front deck of you, your 1870 house, have you ever done like a history of your house? You know, like Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, we have. It's – um. Yeah, no, we we have. Well, in fact, we didn't even have to because when we when we got the house, when we bought the house, it came with the house. So we oh, have. Wow. Um, yeah. So the house was. Um, we we actually saw. We just found online recently images of the house before the last the person we bought it from had bought it, right. and um, it was completely in its original state at that point. In the sense of it had been wow. in the one family for like a hundred years. Oh my god. More. Yeah, it had been in the one family for a long, long time, and it had um, it had sort of you know the there was an, an older lady living here for the last you know on her own for a long time, and it had sort of like just just you know really started to fall apart because it's where the board and you know if you don't mm. really keep the maintenance up on them they're just disastrous. Sure. Um, so we just were really glad because we we found these images um, mm. of it online, and we were just really glad that we bought it not at that point, but at the next point, because the mm. lady who had it before us um, restored it. So it mm. was all restored. Her um, son is a heritage architect. And oh, so it was handy. all restored. Yes. And so it's, it is really old school. Like it's not like, um, you know, you see images in house and garden where it's, you know, the whole back of the house is opened up and there's like a pristine white kitchen and it's not that on any level. Mm. Um, it's very much, you know, it's an old house and we really like it that way. People are often saying to us, are you going to, are you going to do this? And are you going to do that? And we're like, nope, mm, <laughs> we're not. Mm. We like it the way it is. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, so it's uh, yeah we have and we have they gave us when we uh, when we moved in they gave us a little book that's got all of the history of the house in it and it's got the original building plans and it's got oh um, wow you know, yeah it's amazing it's, it's we we feel so blessed it's like you don't I don't think you really own a house like this I think you just sort of become custodians of it for a while yes. and then you you know you know for whatever for however long you have it and then you um and then it goes to someone else because it's it is a really it's a it's a lovely old you know place to live really yes. it's a storybook kind of house are you going to keep that storybook as in obviously they had very good records and oh, they yeah. compiled so we'll you- hand yeah, we'll just yeah. hand it on to the next person. Like when you know, when you know, even when we sell the house, we will present them with all of the things that we have because mm. it's just you know the history of the house stays with the house. I think. Yes, yes, but I mean, are you documenting it in a meticulous way, or you know? no? Because we we haven't done anything to it, so we've right. not made changes to it in the sense that all of the work that was done on it has been done. Um, we've painted it, um, some, you know, we've lots of, cause it is, it was very much restored. So it was done in kind of like those creams and things, which, which are old. They feel like it makes the house feel like an old lady house. Mm. So we have, you know, freshened up the colors a little bit, just not, not in the sense of this, you know, white on white sort of stuff, which, you know, mm. I could tell you the names of the whites, but you'll know that they're just whites. Um, <laughs> we've sort of done that because the floorboards are very dark and it's, you know, so you want to, you want to make it feel you don't want to live in a museum, which, you know, but but you still want to maintain the integrity of the house. So that's what we've done. So we will put our records of paint colours with the records of paint colours that we already have and all that sort of stuff. But we, I'm not, you know, writing the history of the house or anything like that. It's done. Mm. I've got a, it's in a folder and we will just hand the folder on when we move on. Awesome. That's so cool. Gosh, we just did, you know, so you want to be a house restorer. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We did. That was a bit accidental. But uh, let's move on then. We want to give a shout out to Teresa Benitos, who kindly left us a review on iTunes. Now, Teresa said, I just want to thank Valerie Koo and Alison Tate for the podcast, which helped me kickstart my writing this year. This time last year, I decided that 2017 would be the year to really focus on my writing and my memoir. Then in March, I found the podcast and the enthusiasm welled up inside me. So far, I've written 45,000 words of my memoir, was successful in applying for a focus week in advanced memoir at Verena, which I finished last week. And on top of it, on Wednesday, the Irish Times published a piece I'd written on Missing Island at Christmas, which was the most read article on their online forum. Oh, on, well, wow. on Wednesday. So thank you, Val and Al. You have and continue to inspire me. Wow, that's so cool. That's really I love cool. That. Thank congratulations, you so much, Teresa. Teresa. Yes, congratulations. That's I'm missing really Ireland awesome. at Christmas too. I think it would be cool there. Oh yes. Yeah, well maybe a bit too cool for me. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah. Thank you, Teresa. And if any other listeners have thirty seconds to re- leave a review or rating on iTunes. That would be awesome and we'd really be grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. Now, let's move on to some uh, interesting posts this week. This is this one's a little bit different, Al. Uh, you know how I have a little bit of a fascination with how things are named? Like we recently spoke about how colours are named by Dulux and by a nail polish company called Kester Black. Uh, and I'm always fascinated what, like, why people name their kids certain things. Some of them it's, it's not so fascinating. It's just their grandfather's name or whatever. Uh, and wh- how they name things like cocktails and and like and and products. Well, this is an interesting post which comes from ABC News in America because it's about um, some <laughs> Los <clears throat> excuse me Los Angeles subway workers who have uncovered some Ice Age fossils, and they found these fossils and they have named them. Mm. And <laughs> there's this particular Colombian mammoth <laughs> who they mm. have named Hayden. Hayden. Because, yeah, Hayden. <laughs> like it's actually documented and catalogued and everything. And it, this mammoth is called, the fossil of this mammoth is called Hayden. After the actress Hayden Panettieri, you know, she's in, she plays um, Juliet Barnes in Nashville and she was the cheerleader in Heroes. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Why? 
just How? burst out laughing when I read this. I don't even know because the it doesn't even explain why. They just decided in, to name this fossil Hayden. That's hilarious. She's not even a fossil. She's really young. It's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry, that just tickled my fancy this week and I had to share it with someone. So I thought I'd share it with you guys. Right. Thanks <laughs> for sharing that. It just, you probably don't find it quite as um, amusing. But uh, so we'll I just want to know why. Like this is the thing. <laughs> I, I read that and I get that that tickled your fancy. But all I want to know is why. And it I doesn't. Know. And it bothers me that they don't answer that in the article. Like yes. one of the things I always say to um, when I'm doing a features writing course, you know, as a tutor and stuff like that, I'm, I'm always like the why is is the is almost the most important thing yes. of, of these kinds of stories because you read that and that's your first question and it's not answered. <laughs> exactly. So poor journalism on their oh. they should have found out why. Or maybe I'm just too nosy. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe not everyone in the world needs to know why in the same no, no, way that I do. We need to know why. We need to know why. <laughs> yeah, we do. I, that was my immediate reaction as well. But let's okay. move on to something completely different and that's a link that I found on Writer Unboxed. And I thought this was really cool because it's called Three Ways to Discover Your Character's True Motivation by Jim Dempsey. And I thought it was cool because these three ways are, first of all, think about your character in the opposite job. So the opposite of a writer, for example, might be a mobile home installer or the opposite of a waitress. Mobile home installer? (laughs) What? Isn't the opposite of a writer a reader? (laughs) Well, you know what I mean. (laughs) Something quite different. (laughs) You never know. know, And the opposite of an accountant might be an artist or the opposite of a physicist might be a sailor. I don't know. Well, maybe sailing is quite new. Um, but, I just can't wait uh, to see it's going. <laughs> <laughs> but it can be interesting because you can think about why they then decided to do that job and bring their characteristics to it. But the other thing that is really, I think this is very, very useful actually, is to write their eulogy. So think about, you know, if they passed away at the end of their life and all of the things that your character has done and achieved or not done and achieved or whatever, it depends on your character, uh, throughout their life and their best friend or someone is uh, writing or speaking their eulogy. So I think that's a really good one because it will often reveal stuff. If you just let yourself go and re- reveal um, and let just let yourself write what comes out of you of what you instinctively think your character is going to um, have written about them. Uh, it can be quite revealing because in your subconscious you know stuff that's happened to your character that you may not be writing right now because they're not actually going to do it right now at this point in time in your character's life, but they may do it in 30 years. So that's a really powerful one. Don't you think? Mm. Mm. See, most of my characters are children, so it's kind of difficult to do eulogies because, you know, really at the end of the day you you end up with very similar kinds of things. But give me the boy at seven. And you already know the man, mm-hmm. right? So mm. you can still potentially, with some children, know what they're going to end up doing. Uh, I, look, I think the most interesting way to find your character's motivation is to act to true motivation. So this is an interesting thing because I'm in the process of writing a first draft at the moment. That people, I think I'm going to make my deadline. I think I'm going to actually get this done by Christmas. I know it was meant oh to be God. when the boys finished school, but then that got sidetracked. But I think I'm going to get there for Christmas. Um, yeah. So what I have discovered is that what I thought was my character's motivation when I started writing this story, um, it's you often find, I think, that as you, you will have an idea of the, the character's goal in your head and the character's goal is going to be X, right? And then mm-hmm. as you're writing the story and you get to sort of your character, because your character develops, it doesn't matter how how deeply intense your plan may be, your character will still develop as you write because it's just mm-hmm. part of the process of, you know, as yeah. you – as you get into their thoughts and feelings and dialogue, this is where start, things really start to happen. When your characters really start talking, that's when you really start to get to know what's going on with them. And um, so I, I, I have a, I had this thing in my head of what my character's goal was, and and it remains like the the goal is there, but the true motivation for this character has just revealed itself to me. Like I think he, I think he's always known what he was doing, but to me. <laughs> 
yeah, I've got a feeling he's always known what he was doing, um, has only really just, it's only really just kind of revealed itself to me. And it's revealed itself through a subplot that I hadn't bargained on. So the Ooh. subplot kind of developed as I was writing and the true motivation of the character has actually developed with the subplot. And um, and it was one of those, you know, you have those aha moments as you're writing and it's like, right, that's what this is all about. Thank heavens we've worked that out and we're only 20,000 words into but ha- it. But how did it happen? What was the trigger? What was the, you know, thing that it was that, the subplot? That was the epiphany. It was the but- subplot. But I'm not going to say what it is because I'm writing the story. No, 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 no. So no, I'm not going to discuss what, what it is. is. I'm just saying that the subplot, um, that the subplot developed relationships with other characters through the, you know, throughout sort of that particular strand of the story, and it was those relationships with those characters that really brought out the true motivation of my main character. And so did it hit you like a bolt of lightning, or no, did it, wasn't it a bolt of lightning. It wasn't a bolt of lightning. It was just a ah. It's actually about this. So it's because you can think that you're writing a story that is about, you know, X, which you are because that's your narrative arc and it's all happening and that's your kind of storyline. But but what you're actually writing a story about is why. So the because that's the motivation of that's the true motivation of the character and that's probably your theme. That's probably where your theme comes from. So it may not necessarily be the narrative arc, the plot, but your theme will maybe come through in that character's true motivation. Yes, yes. And that, that ties in sense? nicely. Yeah, it ties in very nicely with the third point in this um, in oh, this good. post, which is, <laughs> yeah, which is what if. So yeah. put your character into a situation. What if this happened? What if X happened to them? What if Y happened to them? Well, you obviously put your character in a situation where what if that subplot happened? And mm. therefore, your character's true motivations were revealed. So, uh, certainly, a, a bunch of interesting things that you could do to help you get to know your character better. And we'll put the link in the show notes, which, of course, you can find at so you want to be a writer. com. au. Uh, so, yes. Now, let's move on to the next link, which is from you. Oh. Okay, good. I'm so prepared for that. I'm ready. Let me just wait a minute. Let me sit up straighter. What does it really mean to be a best-selling author, which is a very interesting discussion? Uh, It is an interesting discussion. So I shared this on our Facebook page, on the Writer's Centre Facebook page, and it, of course, you know, brought about quite a lot of um, a lot of interest because, you know, what what is a best-selling author? And, um, you know, it seems, as the the article points out, it seems these days these days that everyone is calling themselves a best-selling author. And as it points out, is that you can achieve best-selling status by going to number one on some tiny niche in some Amazon subcategory for five and a half minutes and you can still call yourself a number one best-selling author. Um, yes. And there is a lot of that going on. Um, yes. So, you know, it, I think in some ways that the, you know, the term best-selling author has in some ways been slightly diminished unless, of course, you're talking about, you know, Leanne Moriarty, who hit number one on the New York Times bestselling list for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Now, that, you know, is definitely a bestselling author. But then there was that great story that we talked about earlier this year. Remember where that woman, that YA author, bought her way onto the New York Times bestselling list by, I can't remember exactly what episode it was, but it was an absolute cracking story because Mm. it, of course, caused huge amounts of dramas you know, on the internet as everything does. Um, so anyway, so I shared the story and it's a really interesting post. So we're going to put the, shit, the, put the shink, put the link in the show notes and um, you can have a read of it. But what I, the reason that I wanted to discuss it was because our fabulous uh, presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre, Pamela Freeman, who is yes. also, of course, a best-selling author of, yes. you know, of many, many books, um, she weighed in on our Facebook page, and I just want to read her comments to you because particularly yeah. relevant to an Australian audience, um, what it means to be a, a bestseller in Australia. All right, so this is Pamela Friedman on Facebook. I actually asked my publishers if I was a best-selling author since I'd heard that term tossed around in meetings, and they said yes. So I asked what made a best-selling author in Australia sales of around 10,000, including at least 5,000 print sales, lower than it used to be. It was once 10,000 print sales before ebooks took so much of the market. So there you go. If you've ever been wondering what it means to be a best-selling author in Australia, that is Pamela's publisher's take on the, on the um, basic 
um, equation. Yeah, yeah, always useful to know. Yeah, and, I think so. And, yeah, definitely have a look at the link in the show notes on um, – uh, the the post that was in Writer's Digest because that does discuss uh, the, the, the kind of parameters if you want to be a best-selling author on Amazon. As Alison said, you literally could be a bestseller for five and a half minutes mm. and you may have only sold 10 copies of your book uh, <laughs> in those five and a half minutes, but it just so happened that everyone else during those five and a half minutes sold just lower than that. Um in your particular niche subcategory. So very interesting how that all plays out. So let's move on to our giveaway this week. It's Christmas, so we have a lot to give away, Al. (gasps) Do we? What are we giving away, Val? Well, you've heard of the 12 days of Christmas. Well, this is the 12 books of Christmas. And it's a mixture of genres to fill up your bookshelf and keep you entertained in 2018 and this is pretty cool because we have also interviewed a number of the uh, authors on this list so you can win and this is all in one pack um so you can win Mm. the little book of kindness by bernadette russell uh um the zanzibar wife by deborah rodriguez her by gary disher origin by dan brown archie and the bear by zany louise and david mcintosh release the bats by dbc pierre the bride price by cat sparks the inaugural meeting of the fairvale ladies book club by sophie green insomniac city by bill hayes dirty rotten scoundrels by matthew benz charlatan by Catherine uh chinks and you do you by sarah knight so you can enter by going to writercenter.com.au slash win. That's writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 1st of January. Wow. Make sure you enter. Yes. I just don't even know what to say to that. (laughs) That's an enormous pile of books. So the final time I'm going to say this for what forever? <laughs> no, for 2017. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready for the word of the week? I'm so ready, Val. <laughs> we so need t-shirts. You realize that, don't you? We so need t-shirts. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> I thought this was really relevant this time of year. So the word okay. of the week is sundoku. That's T-S-U-N-D-O-K-U, Sundoku. So it kind of sounds like those brain games, you know. I was going to say, is it some kind of maths thing? No. It's not. In fact, as I said, I think this is relevant this time of year, particularly for me because I delude myself into thinking that I have more time to read and so I buy even more than I normally do at my local bookshop because this Sundoku is the practice of buying more books that one can possibly read. (laughs) The unread books being allowed to accumulate in piles. It comes from the Japanese slang, which means a blend of sundi oku, to pile things up for later, and doku sho, which means reading books. So, sundoku. Goodness me. Are you going to be practicing sundoku this year? I could represent Australia at the Olympics in sundoku. I think I found my one thing I could probably represent my country at would be that, piling up books. Do you you know, I actually cleared my office out yesterday. I thought, okay, I'm going to like, I'm going to take some time here. I'm going to make some space. I'm going to get rid of the four boxes that are like have been sitting on my office floor for, I've got boxes and boxes of books and bookmarks and, and I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get organized. Right. So I managed to, I managed to clear three boxes there's still two boxes left before I got completely sidetracked by reading a book. Oh, <laughs> I just, yes. I was putting my I was putting things away and sorting things out and I thought, oh, I haven't read that one yet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know exactly what you mean. I did that the other day. You should see my office. It's uh I've even scheduled time in my diary for today. It says tidy office at 1 30. <laughs> Whether or not that happens, I really don't know. I'm going to be checking in with you to see if it has happened. Yes, no doubt I will get sidetracked. I got sidetracked the other day um, by, what was the book? And I just read it from cover to cover Um, because, of course, that was procrastination so I didn't have to clean. Um, It was The Woman Who Fooled the World by Bo Donnelly and I think it's Nick Toscano. 
riveting, brilliant oh. investigative journalism, um, fantastic research, uh, meticulous research, uh, great creative nonfiction um, about the Bell Gibson cancer con. Oh, yes. Yes, very, very, uh, very good uh, investigative journalism. Hmm. Anyway, let's move on to something completely different and talk about or talk to our writer in residence this week. Now, our writer in residence is none other than Australian Writers' Centre presenter Sue White. And Sue White is a very prolific feature writer who has been writing forever and, uh, well, not forever. She actually had a different career in corporate comms and then as a yoga teacher for some years before she came to writing. But she has since carved out a very um, established career, not only as a feature writer, but also as a travel writer. And I thought that it was particularly re- relevant to chat to Sue at this time of year because, you know, it's summer, It's we're on holidays, you may be travelling, you might be interested mm. in travel writing, but one of the things that we talk about is how you can do travel writing at home without ever leaving your hometown. And so let's have a chat to Sue White. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sue. Pleasure. Great to chat. All right. Now, there's so much that I could actually talk to you about, but I'd like to hone in on a few things that I think are really relevant for our listeners at this point in time. But first, before we get onto that, I want to give listeners a bit of an idea, in case they don't know you, of your background, because you weren't always a writer, right? You know, you actually made a career change at some point. So can you just give us a bit of background on that? Absolutely. I'm the queen of career changes. I love them. Um, so I, I did start out thinking I was going to be a writer, but ended up doing communications. So I was a comm specialist for about 10 years, which fit really nicely in with my personal traveling, actually, because I would come home and do some communications contracts, and then I would go overseas and you know do live my the rest of my life there. But then I had another career change and ended up uh, ditching that and started teaching yoga. I got really into that on one of the trips I was away and decided I'd had enough of being in an office. So I came back and I taught yoga for about six years and trained yoga teachers. And obviously so during that time, <laughs> yeah, it was completely different. But I did actually start missing writing during that time, which kind of led me to actually becoming a writer as opposed to a communicator who also does a lot of writing. Mm. So you did yoga (laughs) and at what point did you think, oh, I might be a writer now and what did you do? I started writing in my space. Yeah, yeah, look, because I think that a lot of people who enjoy writing, you just miss it if you don't do it. You kind of need to do it in some form. So I started just writing in my spare time and then I started realising that there were some themes to my writing and I explored maybe I would write a book. This is all the while I'm, you know, going off and doing downward dogs at 6.30 in the morning quite happily. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I, I would be going out to yoga class and everyone would be coming home from the pubs in Newtown. So it was quite <laughs> a contrast in lifestyles. And, um, yeah, I missed writing and I realized I had all these potential stories that could either be put together in a book and then someone said to me, oh, well, maybe they would actually be good features, um, sort of good standalone features. So mm. I started exploring feature writing, magazines and newspapers, got really into that, and then travel came next. So you started writing features and then at some point decided to get into travel writing. Why? I actually started out thinking that travel writing wasn't going to be possible to do. So I actually didn't attempt it at first because I just thought it was too competitive and you had to have all these secret contacts in your back pocket and I didn't have those contacts. So I assumed that it wasn't for me. But after I started to understand how the world of feature writing work, I realized that, oh, actually, maybe with some extra knowledge, I could start to tap into travel writing. So I I did a really big trip and just was writing as I was going, um, compiling story ideas, and then came back and used my understanding of the market and how it works to start pitching in travel stories. And then it went gangbusters from there, really. 
Mm. Now, the thing with um, travel ride that people often think about is that they need to be really, you know, heavy-duty travellers. And that's not necessarily the case, is it? Because, you know, I, we've had students who are travel riders who live in country New South Wales and never go overseas and who just do travel stories on towns that are within, say, two hours' distance from their home. Um, I... I since it's this time of year where it's summer, people some people might be travelling or some people are at home, I'd just love to explore um, a discussion that will be relevant to everyone. Can you write travel stories when you're basically, when you don't travel much? <laughs> when you're not going anywhere. Oddly enough, you can. And it's one of the things that really surprises people when, uh, they take the travel writing course and they start to understand where the opportunities lie. But there's a real opportunity for savvy travel writers to write on their hometown. Especially, look, of course, that's easier if you live somewhere that's, that other people want to visit. You know, if, if it's that you live in a beach suburb and, or a beach town and every January it starts to get inundated with visitors, well, then there's probably a potential for a travel story about that area and almost any major city if you live in any major city the same thing almost year round but you're absolutely right and we've got lots of graduates um, who live in regional areas who live in the outback who've generated a really successful career in travel writing by thinking about well actually what do I know that other people don't know about Um, because if you live somewhere if you're a local to somewhere then you often have these fantastic insider tips and I think that insider tips is what makes a really good travel writer. It's what makes us different to a brochure or to Google is, you know, we, we've got that inside scoop. And the thing is, I'm assuming then you um, don't, it's, you're not limited to say just, let's say you live in Sydney. Uh, you're not yeah. limited to say, oh, I've written one article in Sydney now, that's it, that's my hometown, I, there are no more travel articles left for me. No, because this is what, and again, this is why I really like seeing people's minds shift when they learn about the travel writing industry. You you look at angles. You start to get really good. Good travel writers will understand how to take one destination and turn it into a multitude of angles. So in Sydney, yeah, you might have written a destination piece about Sydney, but then you've also written what to do in Sydney in summer on a rainy day when you can't go to the beach. And you've written a story on Sydney's museums that aren't um, the ones that we all know down at, say, the Darling Harbour or Circular Quay. You've written about Sydney's theatre beyond the opera house. You've written about the best food options. You know, I could just go on and on and on. Yeah. There's probably 10 or 20 angles without even stopping to think about it and then you start to learn where you can sell those stories but it's angles that's going to get you um, that repeat repeat work and it's a really smart way to operate. So when you're talking about angles it sounds to me like you're saying that a travel article is actually not necessarily written by somebody who travels a lot. A travel article is an article written for people who want stuff to do, <laughs> which, who are typically yeah. travellers. Well, and there's, there's a real crossover between things like food writing, for example, and travel because, you know, a great food story of the best foodie spots in Byron Bay, for one audience it could absolutely be seen as a travel uh, travel article, but for local readers, they're probably just as interested in going there. So, yeah, absolutely. There's there's crossover with travel with all sorts of niches. Like, you know, we have uh, travel writers who are really into wine, and so then they write for wine-focused magazines. And when they go traveling, they'll do a story on their destination, but they'll also do a wine-focused story on their destination, and they're getting two hits out of that. So, yeah, once you start to really understand where the where how you can use angles in travel writing the world really opens up it's actually really interesting because this is really just flipped the way i've been thinking about travel writing <laughs> myself and it's 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 so much broader than you know than a lot of people think so let's say somebody is um you know they're interested they're interested in writing obviously because they're listening to this podcast but they might be interested in dipping their toe in the water in, in travel writing, whether that's at home or, or maybe let's take at home and then a, a, an at home scenario and then let's take a travel writing on their 
travels kind of scenario, mm-hmm. how would they dip their toe in the water? I think if you if you're starting out, you because everyone has this idea that the tra- that travel riders are getting paid to fly across the world, and blah, blah, and that is true. That definitely happens, but that's not going to happen on day one without a portfolio of work. So it is really sensible to start looking around your local area and think, what story opportunities are here that I could do that would be you know low cost, or I'm paying to do anyway because we all you know are forking out for all sorts of things. Um, so figure out how that could potentially be turned into a story. So you've got almost, you're using what's happening in your normal life to be the research fodder for your first story. So I would definitely start with that. You can, of course, also start with your upcoming holidays, which we can talk about too if you'd like. Um, Well, let's say if you have upcoming holidays and you know that in two months you're going to go to wherever, the Maldives or somewhere, uh, what might you do? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I wish. (laughs) So the first thing, yeah, so the – the first thing that is really important to remember in travel writing, and this does surprise a lot of our students, is that it's not the same as going on a holiday. Like you can't just go on your next holiday and come back and write a story and have done nothing different while you're there uh, because editors are not going to be interested in that. That's an email to your friends, you know, or a letter if you still write snail mail. But a travel writing piece, you you should feel that the experience of being away or even that experience of researching in your own town is somehow different to what you would do in your normal life. You're going to be talking to more people. You're going to be interviewing. You're not going to be going to the same beach in the Maldives every day. You're going to be going to all the different beaches. You're not going to eat in the same restaurant that you just love every night. You're going to be sort of moving around and getting different experiences. And, of course, you're going to keep um, your eye out for really good angles so that you can sell multiple stories. So you do have to approach it quite differently to a holiday, and that's – one of the things that, as I said, it does surprise people, but once you get the hang of that, then um, it becomes much easier. And um, let's just take a real example. So down the road from my house is uh, Baron Joey Lighthouse, and I will admit that even though I have lived here for two and a half years, mm-hmm. I have not yet gone to Baron Joey Lighthouse, but apparently <laughs> it's a cool thing to do. Now, if you were writing just, say, an Instagram post or a blog post or whatever, I mean, we've seen those sort of things, little selfies against the backdrop of Baron Joey Lighthouse or the view from Baron Joey Lighthouse and how you walked however kilometres it was to get there and so on. If you were going to write a travel article on this instead, what additional things would you have needed to include to make this a worthwhile travel article? I realise okay, that so I put you, you on the spot because maybe you haven't gone to Barrington yeah. Lighthouse, but I, I haven't. I actually episode. haven't, but I do know of it. I haven't, but I can I can already get the idea and I know the part of the world it's in. So uh, you'd have to think of a, a few different things. So firstly, is it a standalone is it worth a standalone story on its own? So is someone going to ha- take 800 words just on Barangaroo Lighthouse? Now, if it's um, really well-known, like, you know, the lighthouse at Bar- Byron Bay is quite well-known, so I'm sure there's stories just on that. Is it got some incredible historic angle that makes it really media worthy? In that case, okay, could you stay? Can you stay at Barangaroo Lighthouse, again, all those things would potentially make me say, oh, okay, well, this could be a story just 800 words or 1,000 words just on Barangaroo Lighthouse. But probably what the reality is is that Barangaroo Lighthouse will be part of a bigger story about um, great walks in the northern beaches of Sydney or um, good day, tri- day trips in the northern beaches that where you don't get sand on your feet or lots of, you know, so I'd come up with a number of different angles and I'd probably be weaving it into a bigger picture story because one of the things that we all think as writers is that our thing is worth, you know, 2,000 words and what editors always think is, oh, yeah, that's interesting but I also want, you know, a lot of other information as well. So, um, and they might want four or five different activities in that area packed into that same story. So, again, once you start to understand what the structure of travel stories is like and what the market is actually buying, then you would look at Baron Joe Lighthouse and you would go, all right, does it meet this criteria? Yes or no. 
What is some of the most rewarding things about travel writing? Oh, it's so fun. Um, there's so many great things. And I think anyone who's into traveling, you know, you just, you've got itchy feet constantly. So it's a great excuse to be going away. But, you know, for me, I traveled a lot before I was a travel writer and I've traveled even more since then. And you're traveling differently. You're doing different experiences. Mm. So some of those experiences are, let's, be honest, things that you couldn't necessarily afford to do so regularly on your own because mm. in travel writing, often someone else is paying for them. So that's, you know, quite lovely. But often you're getting access that you no- wouldn't normally get. So, you know, one good example from my travel writing career is I did a trip to Belize in Central America a number of years ago and we went out into the jungles to talk to the farmers who were growing the cacao that goes into green and black chocolate. So it's a beautiful part of the world, Belize, but I, if I just go there on my own as a traveler, I can't just lob along and find the farmers and have a chat to them and go and have lunch <laughs> in their house. I certainly couldn't then. Whereas because I was a travel writer and I was actually on a, a an organized trip called a famil, um, I was able to visit lots of, you know, six or ten different farmers and meet their families and have this really amazing travel experience that I just couldn't do um, without wearing my travel writer's hat. And, of course, Famil is short for what? Familiarisation or sometimes known as press trips. So it's the it's the things that people think about when you're getting um, tra- sent across the world as a travel writer and you're not paying for anything, you're usually with a group of other journalists and on something called a, a famil or a press trip. All right. There's so pros and cons to those, but they certainly are very good for the wallet. <laughs> yes, yes. So with famils or press trips or junkets or whatever, you know, terminology we want to use, that is, as you say, the, uh, the all-expense-paid trip where a travel writer gets to go on someone else's dime to see the most amazing places on earth, often flying business or first class, and um, it's a pretty great experience. So as you say, though, they don't happen on day one because that's um, a little bit unrealistic, but it definitely does happen. Both you and I have been on for meals. What I think listeners would find really useful is if we could just step out kind of like the stages of, I know you cover this in, in your course, in your travel writing course, but there, there are different stages that you start off doing um, this kind of travel trip, then this kind, then this mm-hmm. kind, until you reach the, yep. the, the all expense, expense paid for meal. Can mm-hmm. you step that out? Yeah, so I reckon there's probably four, three or four different models. And that first model is really you start out, and as we were talking about earlier, you pay for stuff yourself. So it's kind of the do-it-yourself model. You might well, do you something might do it that's at home. Free, free or it's low cost or it's easy for you to achieve, that's right, within the realms of your normal life. Um, so, yeah, no one's going to pay for you to do things if you haven't got runs on the board. So you've got to almost prove yourself, like in any industry, really. So that's that's definitely the way to start out. There are certainly some strategies um, that I often talk about with students for when you want to really ramp all that up. There's definitely strategies that you can do that on, on mass. But for, you know, most people starting out, you could just poke around and do a couple of stories that way. After and and time, maybe and a I, great example would be what you just said, um, great, seven great walks in the northern beaches, which doesn't cost anything. Absolutely. And there's mm-hmm. if you sit down and think about that, there is, you know, as I said, I reckon I could come up with 20. If you gave me 10 minutes, I could definitely come up with 20 things that we could do where Baron Jory Lighthouse would be featured in yeah. a story. So it's about starting to really think creatively about destinations and about what's around you. And often, you know, we talk about uh, looking through local eyes in the travel writing course and people are often really surprised and you think, oh, there's nothing really here. And actually look around and you're like, oh, there is that, there is this, there is that. Um, And it's stuff that other people wouldn't necessarily know. You only know because you are surrounded by it and it is around the corner from you. So, yeah, step one I reckon is to do, do your own thing. Um, but after that, after you get a little bit of practice, you can start to get what we call hosted experiences. So hosting is when a company or an organization will basically let you do the activity or the experience for free. So it could be 
um, you're incorporating uh, maybe bridge climb or know, a surfing lesson or uh, a walking tour. So something that's not a massive big ticket item in terms of lost revenue for that company or big risk for that company. Perhaps they already had an extra spot on that walking tour and it's not really any skin off their nose if they let you attend it um, as part of your potential story. But again, you still, you know, that's stage two because you want to be able to show them some of your work or potentially you want to show them a commission um, and then you can start to reduce your costs and expand your horizons a little bit in that way. So that, yeah, that would be what I would approach next. Mm-hmm. Once you've nailed that, you probably start to get a little bit more ambitious mm-hmm. and um, start thinking about, oh, well, I'm only paying for some things now. How could I pay for even fewer things? And there are a couple of ways to do that. So as you mentioned, yeah, the famil is, we see it almost as the end point. Sometimes once you get a number of runs on the board, you actually start to get offered famils earlier than you would think, um, particularly if you're writing for a niche audience that appreciates the work, that, that, that access to having their story out there or if it's a very high-profile publication. So, you know, for a number, an example, for a number of years I um, did the travel stories for Australian Yoga Journal. So obviously it's a very niche um, industry and I'd write about yoga retreats across the world. Well, even though it's a niche publication, for the people offering that as a free experience, it's great for them. It's the perfect audience for them. You know, they, they don't need it to be, um, you know, a, I don't know, CNN magazine. They, they're quite happy that it's a targeted audience of people who are already really interested in yoga and then potentially going to book in on their tours. So, um, you get, it's, you might find that those kind of opportunities come a little earlier than you would expect once you've got, um, some examples in your portfolio. There is one other little model that, that people don't think about that I really like and it's kind of in between those um, do-it-yourself, pay, someone's paying for a little bit and, and the famil and I kind of refer to it as this hybrid model where you deliberately, quite happily, don't try and get everything hosted and that's mm. often what I do. So I, I would have some things that are paid for by... Um, so perhaps my accommodation is paid for, my car rental is paid for, some of my meals, some of my activities, but the other stuff I just pay for myself. And I actually really love that model because it gives me a lot more freedom on the ground than I have if I'm on an organized trip. And it gives me a lot more chance to maximize getting multiple stories out of my trip because I'm much more in control of my own time than I would be if someone's paying for everything and basically they have me on a schedule that I need to follow the whole trip. Yes, yes. Now, one of the things that um, – because I've known you for so many years now. I actually remember the day we met in Sky Garden. Um, I remember that uh, too. Yes, I remember the table we were sitting. I can picture it. But anyway – uh, one of the things that you've always been doing successfully is for whatever you're interested in at the time, for example, yoga or, you know, whatever your, you know, particular interest Wacky is. interest stuff. Yeah, whatever right. your wacky yeah. interest is at the time. You uh, managed to combine that with your writing in that you will find a way to write a feature on it in, of some sort. This is true. Would that be correct? This is true. And I have to, yeah, so I've done that. I probably, I'm probably up to my third iteration of that, I would say now. So probably I started out um, doing a lot of yoga focused yeah. writing and then yoga travel, particularly the yoga travel. Um, then I moved into environment interest. So I was really interested in all the kind of green movement and I did a lot of travel running for all the niche environment magazines that were still around but were very prominent a few years ago Um, and I did a lot of that. So what would happen is every trip I would go on, I would get one or two mainstream stories, one yoga story and one environment story at least out of one destination. So it was really easy for me to triple my money um, and I got very good at working out itineraries that could overlap because there are you know, some things in the that would be interest to the yoga audience that the mainstream audience would like to and the environment audience would like to but not all the same so I got 
really savvy at that. And then I guess the latest iteration of that is family travel because I have a three and a half year old. So I've been uh, required to move into family travel really. No, it just really suits me um, to write stories about the destination again on their own and also then to add in a family travel story or two. Yeah. And in addition to all of that, you write regular features uh, like on careers and 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 things like that. Can you just talk a little yep. bit about that and why you do it and what you like about it um, as well? Yeah, I love the mix of different types of writing. I've always really thrived on variety. So being a freelancer really suits me um, And because you get really involved in whatever it is you do and then you file your story and then on to the next thing and I, I love that. So yeah, I write every week for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age and I've done that for a number of years including all the way through my travel writing um, and written for all different sections of those publications. I've also written for lots of the big glossy magazines and now I do more, I do the occasional parenting writing for some of those kids' magazines as well as my travel writing as well as my Sydney Morning Herald writing. Right, so you've got a lot on your plate and you have a toddler. <laughs> so maybe you can talk me through when you're not travelling, let's talk about that first, and you're at home and you need to basically um, fit in what sounds like full-time work with full-time parenting. Uh, Just talk to me a little bit about the structure of that and then I imagine that if you are going on a trip, like a two-week trip or whatever, you then Mm. have to think about, well, how am I going to complete all my stories and stuff that I do while I'm away on a trip? So can can we just, yeah, discuss that? Yes, and this will be certainly an issue that a lot of listeners will be faced with because um, it is a hectic time of your life when you've got young children, but it's a hectic time for you know a lot of people irrespective of what they're doing. Um, so for me, the first answer is I have childcare, so there's not a child running around under my feet because work is work. So, And I learned that really early on from some friends who were really organized and really successful in what they did. And they had young children and they tried to keep going in their business with the child at their feet and they all basically collapsed. So I didn't ever try to do that. I just, you know, I have childcare. I work when my child's asleep. I work in the evening sometimes. I work at funny hours of the day. So I maximize every hour of every day, really. Um, I have a really fairly uh, intense schedule. So I'm, I love a good list and I plan things out and I'm always looking at what the next week looks like and the next fortnight looks like. I'm quite strategic, so I think it's really easy when you're busy um, to just get bogged down in what you're doing and then suddenly go, oh, my goodness, I haven't pitched a story to this mm-hmm. editor that loves me for four months because my yeah. head's been buried. So I, I always am looking at the big picture. Uh, in terms of travel writing, though, again, I I look at when I'm – I now batch my travel a lot more. I, I used to do a lot more. I'd be – go for a week and then I'd come back for three or two or three weeks and I'd go again for five days and go. So I, whereas now I'm likely to go for longer trips, maybe four or five longer trips rather than 10 or 12 shorter trips. And why is that better? Um, and so it's better because by the time you pack up a small child <laughs> and you organize all your other work, you actually may as well just be there and stay there and get multiple stories out of it um, rather than just go to all that trouble for smaller things, which I could do when it was just me. Um, so, again, that changes. you everywhere. You bring your child to all your travels. It's because I'm a solo parent and I bring my child everywhere. So not everyone is in that situation. Uh, I did take a nanny with me on our last trip and that was delightful. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, a lot of people are in um, a situation where they, you know, they would just leave their children with their partner while they're doing that and great. So, but, you know, a lot of people's partners may also protest about that. So mm-hmm. not as many as you would think you have that option. And also, you know, my child's really young. So that's, you know, once he, in a few more years, he can much more tag along and it's actually not an issue just for normal stories that are not related to, you know, he can come to Baron Joey Lighthouse mm-hmm. and I can poke around and get the information I need. It's not really any hassle. Um, so, yeah, I do take him everywhere. Um, he's my mini traveler. But also I do a lot of family travel writing, so he's actually my tester. So he's quite integral to my stories at the moment too. 
Um, I do usually work a lot when I'm away on a travel riding trip. So again, it's very different to a holiday. I don't, uh, I am taking a holiday over the Christmas break and I will just, you know, sit on a beach and do nothing and sit on the same beach every day for a week. But when I'm on a travel riding trip, I, I'm not doing that. And I also am probably doing some work in the evening because I really like to write when I'm away. I think travel writing is much fresher if you at least do a draft version when you're actually in situ because you get the colour and the anecdotes and it, it all sort of can vanish very quickly when you're back home in a busy schedule. So I, I do have a good system with that. Um, and I do so try we, and we, sort of block we, off other... Yeah. Sorry, with that, when you say you do work while you're away, are you working on that uh, travel story or are you working on some other unrelated story? I'm, you know, I'm usually doing both, but right. I, I, what I meant is I'm, I'm trying to write the story that I'm there for. So, you know, I was in Fiji earlier this year and I wrote a few, I think I wrote three stories on our 10 day trip and I wrote the drafts of them while we were there because I knew that when I'm home, I'm really busy and it would be, and that the writing would be better and I could do it more efficiently in situ because it's fresh and it's alive for me. Um, on a longer trip, yeah, I do also do other work, but I try, I don't, I write long lead features as opposed to news pieces. So I'm not necessarily writing stories that are time. Specific, so I can actually do a lot of writing in advance. So what it does mean for me is that before I go away on a travel writing trip, I am really busy because I'm trying to clear as much of work as I can so that when I'm away, I can really focus on the experience and those travel stories and anything urgent. And then when I'm back, I have a couple of weeks of catch up. So yeah, it is, you know, it's, it's busy. There's no lying about that. It's definitely busy. <laughs> and, and finally, you've mentioned that you are quite strategic and you do look at the big picture. Um, and that is, I, I believe, I, I know that to be true because I've known you for so long. Can you share with us what kind of career plan you have, say, for the next five years as your child, uh, gets a little bit older and, um, you know, what what you've put in place as as your plan, as your structure um, in terms of your, your, your career. Yeah, and I've been doing a lot of thinking about that particularly this year and I think what I've come decided on is that I want to almost have a slashy career and that is going to be or a portfolio career where you're doing multiple things and that um, – is going to be my career, but they're all writing related, every arm to that slash. Every slash is writing related. So um, I'm ramping up some copywriting work because I'm always in demand for that. So I'm uh, opening a boutique agency in that. I'm partnered with another journalist through a media training business, which is really interesting. I'm definitely keeping up on my journalism and I'm definitely keeping up my travel writing and I I'm wondering now what my next niche will be, actually, <laughs> but I'll keep the family travel niche up certainly for the next four or five years at least and start adding in probably some additional niches or more. You mean a new interest or hobby or something? That's right. It could be knitting, could be sailing, <laughs> probably won't be sailing. I'm a bit of a land lover. I don't know what it's going to be, um, okay. but I'm sure there'll be something because – yeah, there, there always tends to be. So, yeah, I, I could see that, um, that and all those things. I also really quite like digital nomad lifestyles. So, again, travel mm. running fits really nicely with that and all the arms to my career fit really nicely with being location independent. So I can see we'll be doing a lot more of what we've done this year, which is a two-month sort of trip away, and I do a bit of work and a bit of travel riding and a bit of holiday all at once. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to see what your next niche is going to be. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us, Sue. And um, yeah, look forward to seeing your next article. Thank you, Valerie. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd like to get paid to see the world, our popular five-week course in travel writing will show you how. From Dubai to Dubbo, learn the steps 
bringing destinations to life, as well as how to research and plan your itineraries and exactly what you need to do to approach a travel editor so they will publish your article. All this with a few hours of study each week. You'll enjoy the convenience of online learning and have your very own tutor to provide personal feedback on your writing and answer your questions. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash travel writing course. There you go. Sue White, our writer in residence this week. Fantastic. I love Sue and I love the fact yes. that she still manages to, to travel with a child under her arm. She's doing a brilliant I job. I know, I know. Mm. And I have to actually thank Sue for moving to Canberra because as a result of that, I visited Canberra for the first time in like decades and Ooh. it's pretty cool and hip these days. <laughs> I like it. We've yeah. discussed Canberra before. I'm very Ooh. fond of Canberra. I like yeah. it a great deal. And hello to all our people in Canberra yes, who I know Canberra. and they love a shout out. So I'm giving a shout yes. out to all of our people in Canberra because there's lots of them. Big, big, big shout out. All right. So we're at the end of the year. It's the start of a new year. So this is actually the perfect time, don't you reckon, Al, for t- to take stock with what you're doing with your writing, obviously to have a little bit of a break as well. But because we do have things do slow down. I mean, so many people aren't at work. They don't return your calls. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, it's such a good time to, to, to be spending some time thinking about potentially building your author platform or what your plans are as a writer for 2018, right? Absolutely. Now, of course, Val and I will be discussing this in depth in our first couple of episodes of next year, which is Mm. not far away. 2018 is almost up on us. And, you know, if you're anything like me, you've probably spent 2017 thinking, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do whatever and I'm going to and I'm going to and I'm going to. And now's the time to have a look at what you've actually done and what (laughs) you're still going to do. So, um, well, there's a lot of that going. I mean, you know, you and I have discussed in depth. I've been writing courses for Val all year that still haven't appeared, people. So, you know, I do (laughs) understand. Um, So, what we need to think about at this point is particularly, so obviously the writing of the book is essential. However, I do feel that it's really important to take a break at this point of the year. Like I I always take a break over the Christmas, New Year. It it always feels like the kind of time when you're going to get heaps of writing done, but the fact (laughs) of the matter is you're actually not. And this has been my downfall for the last couple of weeks because I've been all like, yeah, I'm so going to get this finished by Christmas and I'm all over it. And then there's a thousand things like there's Christmas and there's, you know, uh, sorry, Christmas concerts and there's, you know, nippers and SRC and I honestly my calendar is so full of other people's stuff it's not funny so I haven't it's taken me longer to get stuff done than I wanted however I as we discussed I am on track but I think that it's really important that you take a break because you really need to give your brain a bit of your subconscious some time to work and think Mm. about what's going on so I'm having a break which is not to say I won't be doing anything so what I will be doing is taking stock giving some yep. serious thought to you. And it's just, it's a lot of thinking. It's a lot of lying around on the beach, you know, not doing an awful lot on the outside, but internally working very hard. Um, yep. I'm going to be doing a lot of thinking about what's worked um, for me this year as far as my platform's concerned. I'm going to be looking at what I might need to do next year. I'm going to be looking at what projects I've got coming up and what sorts of things I might want to be able to, to put in place to to sort of, you know, get uh, get those projects out there. Um, the, as I think, did we discuss this? The Adaban Cipher has been picked up for publication in the US by my US publisher, Kane Miller. So I need to think about, you know, about how that's going to go out in the US. Um, so lots of different things. But if, if you're at the point where you haven't sort of, you know, if you've been thinking about starting your plat, like starting a blog, getting yourself on Twitter, doing some kind of social media stuff this year, and you haven't done it yet, now's the time. Um, and all I think that you need to do to get yourself started is to maybe find five people. If you're interested in Instagram or you're interested in Twitter or you're interested in Facebook, find five authors on those platforms that, that, you, that, you, that you enjoy their feeds, that they're yep. doing interesting things, that they have the kind of platform you'd like to emulate. Yes. Find those people and follow them. And what you're basically mm-hmm. doing here is not just, oh, there's a pretty picture and gosh, isn't that interesting? You're studying what they're doing. Because, yes, you know, if important. those people have successful platforms, there's probably a good reason for it. So what we want to try and do is emulate what they're doing. So think about that. Just find five people. Now, I've got 
somewhere buried in my archives um, on my site, I've got a list of 50 people to follow on Twitter. And I know that the Australian Writers' Centre has mm-hmm. another great list of Australian authors to follow um, on yep. Twitter. And I'm pretty sure that there's a Facebook one there somewhere. If there's not, let's make one, Val, because really we need okay. one. <laughs> um, so, you know, like have a look for the kind of resources that can help you. We'll put some stuff in the show notes. Yes, but we'll put the links in the thought. show notes. Oh, I've also got some posts on great uh, Australian authors to follow on Instagram, so I'll put those in there as well. But like, find some people, follow those people. This is this is kind of like studying as fun, and you know, you can be saying to people, "Oh, look, I'm I'm actually working really hard here as I'm looking at my social media," mm. because what you're trying to do is work out what these people are doing that is working for them, so that you can do it in 2018. Yep. Absolutely. Fantastic tips. And of course, Alison is full of fantastic tips on how to build your author platform. And you can find out the exact blueprint on what you need to do to build your author platform by going to her course, How to Build Your Author Platform. It's at writercenter.com.au slash platform. That's writercenter.com.au slash platform. So check it out. Now, We are, as we've said, towards the end of the year, and in fact, dear listeners, we're going to miss you, but we're going to take a very, very short break, very short break for two weeks. We are. Because we, it's a time for us to reflect and do all of the things that Alison has just mentioned because it is very, very productive and very, very useful to be able to do that, and this is the perfect time for us to do it. So thank you for listening to us in 2017. We hope to come back in 2018 bigger and better than ever and to bring you lots of useful, valuable information and introductions to authors and and chats with really interesting people. And we hope that um, you'll come back in 2018. We do. And we hope that you have a wonderful holiday season. I hope that you have a lot of, you know, relaxing, eating, inspiration, studying authors on social media and all of the other things that we've talked about. And we have got some great things planned for you in 2018, I think. (laughs) Lots of great things. Lots of great things. Lots of great things. Um, And we will look forward to seeing you then. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. And, of course, clearly I am so excited by the end of the year that I forgot to mention where you can find us. So here's the final Easter egg of the year. You can find Alison at alisontate.com. That's two L's and Tate spelled T-A-I-T. She's also Alison Tate Writer on Instagram and Facebook and Al Tate on Twitter. You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and and Instagram. And, of course, make sure you connect with us in the Facebook group. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook. As for the Easter egg, well, I'm reading A Room of One's Own, 50 Places That Made Literary History by Adrian Morby. I'm watching The Crown Season 2 on Netflix and I'm about to watch Halt and Catch Fire Season 4. Great show. I'm looking forward to Christmas Day lunch at a nice local restaurant where I won't have to cook or clean up anything. I'm going to spend the break doing a lot of painting and creating artwork. I'm grateful for every single one of you. We love bringing this podcast to you and love our wonderful listener community and all of your comments and your feedback. You certainly make it all worthwhile. And a big thank you to all of the people behind the scenes at this podcast. You make this podcast happen and Alison and I couldn't do it without you. So big thank you to Stevie and Sarah and Ra and Kira and Dean and Alvin and Elmer and Farah. You guys are amazing. 